Well, good morning, and welcome to our weight management call. It is Wednesday. No, it is not. It is Tuesday. It is Tuesday, the 21st of July. It's unbelievable. Time is flying by. It seems to be I'm just so busy every day. There's so much to do. I hope you are well, and as I said, welcome to the call. This is Dorcas Smith, Granny D out of Plymouth, Michigan. I'm a retired teacher who is always interested in how our body and our brain works and how you get to stay well and be healthy and full of vim and vigor for as long as possible. Where do you want to live? Down in the gutter or feeling great and moving and functioning? I want to do the second, the latter. Okay, so here we go. I'm working, I've been working on the brain because the brain is the part of our body that really runs the whole thing. And I'm reading from Brain Rules, John Medina. And we're working on survival and big brains. Now, humans are amazing. Why? because humans adapt to variation itself. It's actually quite a brilliant strategy. Instead of learning how to survive in just one or two ecological niches, oh, humans just decided to take on the whole globe. And those who were unable to solve the new problems or learn from the mistakes in their new environment didn't survive long enough to pass on their genes. So what was the net effect of this? We learned, or we figured out, that we didn't be, or what we did was we didn't become stronger, we became smarter. We learned to grow our fangs, in, not in the mouth, but in our head. And it worked out to be a pretty smart strategy because we took over the world. Potts calls this notion variability, variability selection theory. And it explains, it, it tends to explain why our ancestors became increasingly allergic to inflexibility and stupidity. Little in the fossil record is clear about the exact progression, another reason for bitter controversy but all researchers must contend with two issues. One is bipedalism. The other is what to do with our dang increasingly big heads. <coughs> Excuse me. Variability selection theory predicts some fairly simple things about human learning. It predicts there will be interactions between two powerful features of the brain, a database in which to store a fund of knowledge and the ability to improvise off that database. One allows us to know that we've made mistakes. The other allows us to learn from those, those mistakes. Both give us the ability to add new information under rapidly changing conditions. Both may be relevant to the way we design classrooms and cubicles. Hold on a second.
Sorry, everybody. I need to have a good cough. So, standing tall. Variability selection theory allows a, a context for the jewel representation. No. Just let me try that again. <coughs> I don't know why I'm coughing this morning. Variability selection theory allows a context for dual representation, but it hardly, hardly gets us to the ideas of Judy LaRoche and our unique ability to invent calculus and write romance novels. After all, many animals create a database of knowledge and many of them make tools, which they even use very creatively. Still, it is not as if chimpanzees write symphonies badly and we write them well. <coughs> Chimps can't even write them at all, and we can write ones that can make people spend their life savings on subscriptions to the New, New York Philharmonic. Philharmonic. Oh, my goodness. Not a good day for me today. All right. There must have been something else in our evolutionary history that made human thinking unique. One of the random genetic mutations that gave us an adaptive advantage involved learning to walk upright. The trees were gone or going. So we had to deal with something new in our experience, walking increasing long, increasingly long distances between food sources, that eventually involved the specialized use of our two legs. Bipedalism is an excellent solution to a, a vanishing rainforest, but it, but it was also a major change. At the very least, it meant refashioning the pelvis so that it no longer propelled the back legs forward, which, which is what it does for, great, for the great apes. Instead, the pelvis had to be reimagined as a load-bearing device capable of keeping the head above the grass, which is what it does for you. Walking on two legs had several consequences. For one thing, it freed up our hands. For another, it was an energy efficient. It used fewer calories than walking on four legs. Our ancestral bodies used the energy surplus not to pump our, up our muscles, but to pump up our minds to the point that our modern-day brain, which is only 2% of our body weight, actually sucks up 20% of the energy we consume. Think about that. It's 2% of our body weight, but it use, uses 20% of the energy. That's because it's our computer, and it takes a lot of energy to run. These changes in the structure of the brain led to the masterpiece of evolution, the region that distinguishes humans from all other creatures. It is a specialized area of the frontal lobe, just behind the forehead. It's called the prefrontal cortex. We got our first hints about its function from a man named Phineas Gage, who suffered the most famous occupational injury in history 
of brain science. The injury didn't kill him, but his family probably wished it had. Gage was a popular foreman in a railroad construction crew. He was funny, clever, hardworking, and responsible, the kind of man any dad would be proud to call son-in-law. On September 13th, 1848, he set an explosive charge in the hole of a rock using a tamping iron, a three-foot rod about an inch in diameter. The charge blew early, and it blew the rod into Gage's head, entering just under the eye and destroying most of his prefrontal cortex. Miraculously, Gage survived, but he became tactless, impulsive, and profane. He left his family and wandered aimlessly from job to job. His friends said he was no longer Phineas Gage. That was the first real evidence that the prefrontal cortex governs seven, several unique human cognitive talents called executive functions, solving problems, maintaining attention, and inhabiting and inhabiting emotional no and inhibiting emotional impulses. Of course. This region controls many of the behaviors that separate us from other animals. And, ta-da, teenagers. <laughs> Absolutely. Meet your brain. The prefrontal cortex is the only newest addition to the brain. The three brains are tucked inside. There are three brains tucked inside your head and parts of their structure took millions of years to design. To design. This triune theory of the brain is one of several models scientists use to describe the brain's overreaching, overarching, overarching structural organization. Your most recent ancient neural structure to the brain stem, or lizard brain, this rather insulting label reflects the fact that the brainstem functions the same in you as in a Gila monster. The brainstem controls most of our body housekeeping our body's housekeeping chores. Its neurons its neurons regulate breathing, heart rate, sleeping and waking. Lively as Las Vegas, they are always active keeping your brain purring along whether you're napping or wide awake. Sitting atop your brainstem is what looks like a sculpture of a scorpion carrying a slightly puckered egg on its back. The paleo-mammalian brain appears in you the same way it does in many mammals, such as house cats, which is how, it got its, how it's got its name. It has more to do with your animal survival than with your human potential. Most of its functions involve what some researchers call the four Fs, fighting, feeding, fleeing, and reproductive behavior. <laughs> There's a fourth F, but he was too polite. <laughs> Several parts of the second brain play a large role in the brain rules. The claw of the scorpion, called the amygdala, allows you to feel rage, 
or fear or pleasure or memories of past experiences of rage, fear, or pleasure. The amygdala is responsible for both the creation of of emotions and the memories they generate. The leg attaching the claw to the body of the scorpion is called the hippocampus. The hippocampus converts our short-term memories into long-term forms. The scorpion's tail curls over the egg-shaped structure like the letter C, as if protecting it. This egg is the thalamus, one of the most active, well-connected parts of the brain, the control tower for the senses. Sitting squarely in the center of your brain, it processes signals sent from nearby nearly every corner of your sensory universe then roots them to specific areas throughout your brain. How this happens is mysterious. Large neural highways run overhead these two brains, combining with other roads, branching suddenly into thousands of exits, bounding off into the darkness. Neurons spark to life and then blink off, then fire again. Complex circuits of electrical information crackle in coordinated, repeated patterns, then run off into the darkness, communicating their information to unknown destinations. Arching above like a cathedral is your human brain, the cortex, Latin for bark. The cortex is the surface of your brain. It is deep It is in deep electrical communication with the interior. This skin ranges in thickness from that of blotting paper to that of heavy-duty cardboard. It appears to have been crammed into a space way too small for its surface area. Indeed, in, if your cortex were unfolded, it would, be about, it would be about the size of a baby blanket. It looks monotonous, slightly like the shell of a walnut, which fooled anatomists for hundreds of years. Until World War I came along, they had no idea each region of the cortex was highly specialized, with sections for speech, for vision, and for memory. World War I was the first major conflict where large numbers of combatants encountered shrapnel, where medical know-how allowed them to survive their injuries. Some of these injuries penetrated only to the periphery of the brain, it destroying tiny regions of cortex while leaving everything else intact. Enough soldiers were hurt that scientists could study in detail the injuries and the truly strange behaviors that resulted. Horribly confirming their findings during World War II, scientists were eventually able to make a complete structure function map of the brain and see how it had changed over the eons. But they, the scientists found that our brains evolved Our heads, as our brains evolved, our heads did too. They were getting bigger all the time. Tilted hips and big heads are not easy anatomical neighbors. The pelvis and birth canal can only be so wide, which is bonkers if you are giving birth to children with larger and larger heads. A lot of mothers and babies died on the way to reaching an anatomical compromise. 
human pregnancies are still remarkably risky without modern medical intervention. The solution? Give birth while the baby's head is small enough to fit through the birth canal. The problem? You create childhood. The brain could conveniently finish its development programs outside the womb, but the trade-off was a creature vulnerable to predation for years and not reproductively fit for more than a decade. And that's an eternity if you make your living in the great outdoors. And the outdoors was our home address for eons. But it was worth it. During this time of extreme vulnerability, you had a create, we had a creature fully capable of learning just about anything. And at least for the first few years, not good for doing much else. This created the concept of not only, uh, sorry, this created the concept not only of learner, but for adults of teacher. This was in our best interests to teach well, and as teachers know this, our genetic survival depended upon our ability to protect the little ones. Of course, it was no use having babies who took years to go if the adults were eaten before they could finish their thoughtful parenting. Weaklings like us needed a tactic that would allow us to out-compete the big boys in their home turf leaving our new home safer for sex and babies. We decided on a strange one. We decided to get on with each other. And there we are. I'm going to finish for today, and I'll be reading more on Thursday. All right, let me just take this off. Whoops, a daisy. Take it off mute. Hey there. We decided to learn how to get on together. What a good idea. And good now we've got morning, a good everyone. <laughs> a voice from the past. <laughs> and now we've got Victoria from Dallas, Texas today. <laughs> oh, hello, Victoria. Welcome, welcome. Glad to hear you. <laughs> and you too, Susan. So who wants to talk first? Oh, I was just, just, go ahead, go on. I was, this was a perfect call for me to come on. Um, I was listening to your talk, and did you know that children of our era are losing their executive functioning skills? Because they don't go outside and play anymore. (laughs) They don't use their brain to make up games and rules and so now they're finding that measuring their executive functioning skills it's less and I will tell you that my grandson God bless him has a new computer game and he was up until maybe two three o'clock this morning playing with that computer what does that do to your brain I know it's oh, killing I, mine because I can't. I appreciate. I appreciate it. No, no, totally. Children must play together and out, out and outdoors and be creative. Because if they're not creative, they're not going to build those executive functions. And Isn't it you know, however, need, this is happening. Um. However, I- Only within family groups, I think, right now. And that may change 
here in the near future. Um, there was one school in California that actually moved up. It's going to be moving all of their classes outside since they're a private school and they only have 180 students. And they already had some outside classrooms. So some of that's going to well, start finding for them. It's fine. it's fine if you live in that kind of weather. However, there's also another piece of information. A number of the summer outdoor education programs had to shut down because so many yep. kids got infected. So do you know what? It's okay. What we do need to do is, okay, we can, we, can ed we can teach our children, but what we should do is find a small group of children in your neighborhood whom you, whom you quarantine together with. So my daughter has found a family of four children, and they have decided that they are going to quarantine together. And every day, the six kids play. But every day, and even all summer, my daughter has required both my grandchildren to read, do math, and they have school every morning, even though it's summer, because she's decided that to keep them up to date, she really has to do some teaching. And the school has done an job, awesome job, has given them computers, has given them programs. So we can do this but I don't think that we should have school open. I really don't. And especially you know when what? you... know what? I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm going to don't say one me. last thing. Because of the neurological damage this COVID can do to your brain, I saw a teacher who spoke for five minutes the other day, and she said, I am now in speech therapy. I can't walk across the room. I have no breath. She said, I can't think properly anymore. I won't be able to go back to work. What if that happens to our five-year-olds and our 10-year-olds? We need to keep them home safe until we can protect them properly. I, we, there's just so much about this disease we don't know. Anyway, that's my opinion. And it's just my opinion. Well, I have another one. I, I, I think that I, I agree with you. I think that there's people that that do have, to, you know, different um, reactions to the condition. But sometimes I just wonder. So much is going on. So many different things are happening, and I just wonder if when we get when we have a bad flu season or have had, if we did this, testing everybody, you know, the testing is so askew now. Um, except I, I except don't know. that this, but this disease is different. This is not like a flu. <sighs> I don't know. The I flu think will kill you. Things. The flu will kill you. But the flu doesn't leave after effects like kidney failure, brain processing dis disorder, inability to walk across a room. I'll take a disease well, that that kills me outright or I survive. Yeah. Especially when we have a vaccine. But I don't want to have a disease where once I, if I re recover, I can't think, I can't walk, I can't breathe, and my kidneys fail. Yeah, it's terrible. It's terrible. But there's, it, it, there's it, just so many different theories. There's a Dr. Atlas. 
who doesn't believe that kids are really carriers and that they they don't get oh, yeah. as well the research so, that's coming out of the research that's coming out of Korea disagrees with that it says the children under 10 have a have a decreased infection rate but children from 10 to 19 are just as infectious or more infectious than adults oh okay I got that last night. Look, I listen to everything. I need to know what to do. And um, my my feeling, this is personal completely. I'm going to wear a mask. I'm going to social distance. And I'm staying at home as much as possible. And I'm not visiting my friends. And I'm not seeing my grandchildren. I can well, you know, my... my- Go ahead. No, no, go ahead. My, my daughter uh, did the same thing with my grandson. Um, Hayden is an only child, but they have, uh, he has a dear friend whose mom is a teacher, and the whole year, the kid, Hayden went to his house in the morning, and Shannon did school because they had school online, yep. and there were four kids, and they, I mean, he was like in heaven. They learned. Then they came yeah. over here because my my son-in-law is a chiropractor, but a um, he's a um, um, sports medicine, and he mm-hmm. did that afternoon. He did the physical ed with them, so they did this back and forth. And Hayden even went on their their vacation with them. It was absolutely the best thing that could have happened to my grandson. Well. Do you know something? I totally agree. My kindergartner grandson is now reading at second grade. He's reading at second grade in six months. Amazing. So it's, okay, one of the things, okay, when you look at education, one of the benefits of education is the child care part. And, you know, when I took my first class in the sociology of education, one of the comments was, or one of the, the pieces of information was the fact that childcare is a huge part of teaching or, or, or education. Now we're seeing that because actually teaching children in large groups is probably the one of the most inefficient ways of teaching kids because you can't give them all the individual attention. So for those children who are getting this, your, you know, the kind of treatment that your grandson and my grandson are getting, these children are flourishing. Oh, my God, yes. It's been a godsend for being an only child. He said to me, he says, you know, Bubby, he says, I have another family. He says, I, I, they treat me just like I'm a brother. <laughs> It was made well, me cry. I, I mean, I was oh, delighted. I totally, I get it because, and here's it before I'll get off in a moment. <laughs> this is a fascinating concept, though. At the age of eight, I got to go to girls' boarding school, and so many other of the girls thought when they talk about it, they don't talk about it with the, quite as much love as I do, because when I went, I was a little girl of eight. And I was an only child, and I was so lonely, and I got a school full of sisters. And now, 
you okay, you know that I went to my fiftieth high school reunion. Yeah. I have thirty women who text mm. me every day. They oh my are my gosh. family. And they actually oh are God. the reasons I'm doing so well. Oh, I hear a little voice in the background. <laughs> well, it's the dog. My daughter came back. I've got three grand puppies, but they're huge. And they come in and me up. So here they are. But I'm so glad I got on today because this was a great call. This is my Frodo. He's, I'll have to send you a picture, Granny. He's, he's right. Samantha's okay. therapy dog. He's amazing. So good morning. So anyway, well, listen, you guys, I'm so glad I jumped on today. It's really been fabulous. I love the call. You are my my TR90 family. (laughs) I agree. I agree. And there's something else about this. You know, in every disaster, there are things that we grow by. And we are learning what I was reading today also. We are adapting. We'll make it through, and we'll actually be better for this. We really will. Absolutely. Absolutely. So our people are saying, oh, the children are terrible. No, the children are going to be okay. We will persevere, and they'll catch up, and, it'll, and we'll all grow better for it. There's not, if you're not struggling, there's something wrong with you. Go, world, struggle on, and we'll make it. <laughs> Okay, I'm going to go struggle on because I love you guys. Bye. Bye, everybody. That was a good one. Thank you, Brian.